For our, <clears throat> for our second scripture reading on this Lord's Day evening, we turn to the first epistle of the Apostle Peter and chapter 3 to read the first seven verses. <clears throat> first Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father and our God, this is your word, and we are your people. And you have given your word that it might bless, form, encourage, and direct your people. And so we ask simply that your highest end and purpose in giving us this word would be realized among us and within each one of us in the ministry of your most Holy Spirit, whose help, whose work, whose power we now beg. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, this is a difficult word but not for the reasons sometimes assumed. It was many years ago in a difficult pastoral context when I took my first deep dive, as it were, in these words of Peter, fully expecting that what I would find difficult and challenging about them would be one thing, and instead finding them in fact, to be more deeply challenging than I ever expected, but in a very different way. In these words, I met and meet again with you this evening and invite you to meet as well. A snapshot of hard faithfulness. The particular character of which is very likely to move you in a way you have not often been moved. To lead some of you, perhaps to tears, 
and hopefully all of us, to a profound respect and a deep joy in the examples of hard faithfulness given to us in these words. Again, what I expected to find challenging about these words proved not to be. What in fact proved challenging was more challenging than anything I had imagined. Reached home into my own heart and commanded nothing less than an upheaval. But not on terms which the world around us would ever recognize. And sadly, not on terms many of our brothers and sisters in Christ might recognize. But perhaps for those very reasons, in terms which are urgent for us to recognize. What's going on in 1 Peter chapter 3? Before we immediately start plugging in content into some of these familiar expressions, confident we know exactly what Peter is after, Let's begin by noticing that what Peter is doing here is rather different from a similar interest other New Testament writers have in the ordering of the household in the life of Christ's church. We're familiar, perhaps, with the examples of this interest in Paul's letters to the Colossians and maybe especially to the Ephesians. But what Peter is doing sounds and lands very differently. Why is that? In fact, it is the principal key for understanding what Peter is doing. Let's remind ourselves of the more familiar way this concern is addressed in the New Testament. And take into view, ever so briefly, what Paul does in Ephesians 5 and 6. Here in Ephesians, which is a circular letter, which is to say designed not for one congregational situation, but to be spread, to be shared among other churches in Asia Minor with content that's relevant for all. Here's a general statement about how things should be. Not driven by any particular set of concerns or challenges going on in the life of a particular congregation or cluster of them. This is general truth for the church. And what Paul does in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6 is he, he is revolutionary and countercultural, but in ways that are still general. In Ephesians 5 and 6, we have material about uh, wives and husbands and then children and parents and then slaves, bondservants, and their masters. It sounds like three sections. In fact, it's not. There are not six sets of people in view here. There is only one. The one figure in Greco-Roman context of the ancient world on whom everything rested and who had everything to do with everything else. The so-called paterfamilias. This would be the husband or father in the household. And he is the one person who Paul targets in all three of these sections. In the first one, he is in view as the husband, because that's one of his three principal roles. 
And so Paul only says the conventional, ordinary, fully expected things to wives that every Greco-Roman reader would expect Paul to say, Christians included. Very general language, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church submits to Christ, so wives submit in in everything to their husbands. Something that's very vanilla Christianity 101 for Christian wives in the life of the church. Nothing surprising here. But then he goes on and on and on and on, uh, directing attention to the Christian husband, saying things you just don't say on first century Greco-Roman terms. In that world, husbands are absolutely not obliged to love their wives. It's almost unseemly if you're thought of as someone who really loves his wife. Your wife, after all, is an inferior creature on the social and political scale of the ancient world. And if you show way too much interest in their well-being, you're stooping down and you're not likely to ascend the, the social ladder. You care for them, sure. You take care of them, but you don't love them. And Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Now that is not expected. And love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And on and on and on he goes. For eight verses. And then he turns to children and parents. Or does he? Now that same paterfamilial figure is in view as the father. Well, if what was true of the wife Not loving your wife, but at least taking care of her. Not being known as a wife abuser is fine, but loving her is a different matter altogether. This is even more the case with children. The really well-respected Roman man never involved himself much with children, his own children. He would outsource their education to other people he hired for that purpose. He would maybe have the mother take care of everything related to them, but he wouldn't involve himself in them. The extent of his involvement would be as a figure in the family, one to be feared and respected, directing things for everything below him, that whole microcosm of a world he stands over. But he'd have other people deal with them, so much so children would be afraid to approach their fathers, and they certainly would not expect anything like compassion, tenderness, or actual involvement in their lives. And that's true for boys. For girls, we're in a completely different category. Because at least boys could be educated to become statesmen. They could become esteemed Roman officials. Women never have that prospect in the ancient world. The most they can do is learn how to serve their husbands well and be a part of a functioning household. But this is also why they are of almost no economic advantage to the ancient Roman household. And this is also why early Christians were horrified to discover the widespread practice of abandoning infant daughters on the side of the road to die. And why early Christians were known as the ones who would go along the road and collect them. And in the most anti-abortion practice you've ever heard of, adopt them all, take care of them at great expense, great cost, educate and nurture them. And what does Paul say to this paterfamilial father? Well, first he says something completely predictable to children. Obey your parents. And then he turns to the parents, right? No. He's still talking to the father. He doesn't say anything to the mother because mothers don't need to be told to care for their children. But these Roman fathers do. Fathers don't provoke or exasperate your children. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Yeah. 
you will get involved in the education of your children. Children in the plural, using language that deliberately includes daughters as well as sons. Boy. Then he turns to the third category. Bond servants and masters. Or does he? Again, he only says the predictable stuff to slaves. To bond servants, obey your earthly masters. And then he goes right after this paterfamilial figure again who in the third ordinary role of his life is a master of slaves and tells them to make sure to remember that they are obliged to their own master in heaven and to treat those under their care the way they are treated by their own Lord and master and never forget the one while doing the other. It would appear that Paul sees this one individual as the foil for the the revolution the gospel makes in the world. It's not going to be in these other areas that are fairly conventional. But in this one figure, he is in every way the exact opposite of what Romans think of as the ideal man. This is a man's man on Greco-Roman terms. And Paul is saying, and that's a fool. A man's man loves his wife and sacrifices for her, does not aspire to the Roman ideal of detachment. And if that's true with wives, it's also true for sons and for daughters. As he involves himself in their lives, doesn't walk away and outsource it. And even his slaves, whom he is permitted by law to beat severely, and if they die, well, that was regrettable, but nothing more. He is to treat them with dignity and respect and to remember in his care for them, he has a master in heaven who looks after him. Paul zeroes in on this one figure in the ancient world where you can see the revolutionary power of the gospel. And he is saying in so many words, yeah, that's how the world is and it will not be how you are. All the churches of Asia Minor are getting this message. You, paterfamilial man, sitting right there in the pews, you who are gathered here in Thessalonica and Ephesus and other places, uh, and you are working in the marketplace Monday through Saturday, and you're hoping to get up in the world and climb the social ladder, I want everyone to hear this. You are where the gospel power of God is made visible or not. And now everyone knows what we're expecting of you. Everyone in the church is hearing this, and now you are obliged by everyone around you to keep up with the responsibilities that attach to the gospel. The gospel power of God is going to be most visible in you not being what the world thinks of as the manly man. That's the more general way the New Testament does this. Colossians reads very similarly. 1 Peter does not. 1 Peter does not. The Petrine, the Peter code, household code, is significantly different from the one in Colossians and Ephesians. Why? Well, the exhortations in 1 Peter are directed to members of the church in the Petrine community who are involved in close relationships with non-Christians. And so the author leaves out and modifies things the other household codes in the New Testament say to various household groups. The most important thing about this passage, and, and the thing that I'm, I'm telling you, friends, when, you really, when it really gets down into you and you realize what this means, it will disturb you. 
It will get right inside of you and it won't get out. And the power of the gospel will come home in a way you might not have thought of before. The, the most important feature of this passage, which also exposes the tragedy of its frequent misuse, is a context of severe, costly confrontation between Christians, particularly Christian women and slaves, and non-Christians, especially non-Christian husbands and masters. There is no other New Testament epistle, no other New Testament epistle that deals so directly with families ruptured by Christianity. No other New Testament document deals as extensively and in so focused a way with what Jesus said is going to happen, happening. That Lord, the Lordship of Christ is going to come in the way between you and your husband or wife, you and your son and daughter, you and your mother and father. All of 1 Peter is a pastoral letter addressed to people who are living it. Living it. And they are paying for it. Other New Testament household codes like Ephesians, they address the relationships between Christian husbands and Christian wives, Christian masters and slaves. Here Paul is speaking primarily to believers about their relationships with non-believing members of their households and the antagonism that has arisen because of their Christian beliefs, Christian activities, Christian commitments. And these conflicts were the specific circumstances that created situations of persecution within these households. And which has occasioned the changes Peter makes to that traditional household lesson. The effect of what Peter does in modifying and applying the general Christian teaching, teaching about a household, the effect of this is that the slaves rather than the masters, don't miss this, friends, the slaves rather than the masters, the wives rather than the husbands become the paradigms, the exemplars of the Christian household of faith, of the way of Christ, of the cost of discipleship. We are now being taught to look not to the master, but to the faithful slave under awful circumstances. Not to the husband, but to the faithful wife in excruciating circumstances, who is plucky in her faith, who perseveres no matter what, who is steadfast in the Lord, and to ooh and to awe over the gospel power at work in her. They are now the ones who are the exemplars. Now again, elsewhere... In ordinary circumstances, we look at the godly husband and father who is the opposite of the world's expectations of being machismo and all that, and we see the gospel power of God in them. Peter is saying, but in these contexts, in a divided home, in a divided marriage, in a divided life, full not just of hostility and, and snarky remarks, but as we'll see, truly egregious conduct. Here are the ones you honor. Here are the ones whose example you follow. Here are the ones in whom you see what the church is about in the gospel. And so Peter is not addressing, the way Paul did, children. Because children were less likely to convert to Christianity on their own. Children would follow their parents if the parents became Christian. 
And he's not even talking, Peter is, uh, the way Paul does, about the importance for God-glorifying harmony in these actual households. There is no prospect of harmony. That's Peter's sober expectation. There's no prospect for harmony here. This is all about endurance. This is about continuing in faith, though you are terribly persecuted in the household of God. This is where that dividing line shows up all the time. Follow Christ or reject him. Over and over and over again, you wake up in the morning and there's that dividing line. And you can't avoid it. You are asked over and over again to cross that line. And over and over again, you got to say no in in faithfulness to Christ. And you know you're going to pay for it. And you do pay for it. That's what Peter is addressing. That's what Peter is talking to. Many women in the early church did in fact convert over the objection of their families, creating for themselves polarized social situations. And because of these conversions, and because they were in opposition to recognized family power, recognized cultic power in the ancient religions, Christianity posed one of the strongest threats to the Roman Empire. What was so dramatic about converting to Christianity compared to converting to other religions, which was not applicable to the worship of Isis, the worship of Dionysus, was that Christian women, here is the thing, Christian women would no longer participate in those crucial family cults. In Roman texts, a wife's atheism, as Christianity would be called, A wife's atheism was seen as a cause of her barrenness. It's why you can't have children. You see what the gods are doing to you? In a world where children means your family's survival and the passing down of inheritance and privilege from generation to generation, your legacy is is at stake and and that unbelieving husband is side-eyeing you all day and all night. I know why you're not pregnant. I know why you're not pregnant. You won't come with us and the rest of the family to the cult of Dionysus. You're refusing to do so, and you're putting our entire family's future at stake. They thought of it as the cause of barrenness. They thought of it as the cause of disaster in business, so the business deal didn't go well, so now the business is in trouble. Now you're staring at prospective poverty. Everyone's looking at you. We know why this is happening. We know why that contract didn't work out. We know why the famine hit our region. Disaster in the household, disaster in politics, it's the Christian atheism that's the root of this. No amount of submission, you see, are you getting this? No amount of submission on the part of these women in every other aspect of family life is going to heal that rupture. They can't do more and fix the problem. It's not about doing more. It's not about being more compliant, more respectful. It's not about making the right kind of dinner, right kind of meal, serving the right kind of wine. There's nothing they can do in any other context of their submitting life that makes any difference here. Why? Because they recognize, they recognize that at this line, my following in the way of Christ is in question. And he is my true Lord. And I will pay for it. But I will. I will. 
The situation of wives was similar to the situation of slaves who are addressed in chapter 2, right before our passage. Slaves who deserted the religion of their masters took an extremely radical step. Because the willingness of slaves to give up their own religions for those of their masters was something taken for granted. Of course you're going to do that, I just bought you. Slaves who converted to Christianity whilst being a slave of an unbeliever or converted to some other religion were no longer trusted with the children of the household. And if they refused to worship the family gods, they were vulnerable to extreme punishment. Which makes the language in the New Testament about Christian slaves pop out to us. Christian slaves, we learn in the New Testament, could expect to partake fully, without asterisk, without footnotes, without qualification, without but this and but that, but to participate fully in the fellowship with other free members of the church. When they were in the sacred assembly, they weren't slaves. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. Outside these walls, they were slaves. In these walls, they were not. And that kind of of, of liberty, which indicated their free status when within the Christian community, created a great deal of anxiety for the non-Christian masters of the community. Boy, if they get enough of a taste of this, that's trouble. Slaves and women are constantly having to make awful choices on the margins of regular ordinary life in this world making brave choices about personal participation and experiencing the suffering of the community far more than anyone else. They're the ones who need the most encouragement, and Peter gives it to them. Peter focuses on those in whom, in whom the power of the gospel is strangely visible and strangely vocal even by way of their silence. Now let me just color in the lines a little bit so that we make sure we're picturing things properly. Women slaves in a very similar situation. What's that situation? Oh, this will be hard to hear. Well, we got to hear it. It's common knowledge among ancient historians that slaves in the Greco-Roman world were extremely vulnerable, especially physically, and women similarly. A slave's body and a wife's body was available to her master in four major ways. For labor, and I don't mean tapping on a keyboard in front of a flickering screen, but back-breaking, demanding, long labor, corporal punishment, which is to say beatings under the excuse of some wrong done, Torture, which no longer pretends to have a good reason, and sexual service. Now these Christian women, these Christian slaves, would have found those first three things terribly difficult, deeply degrading, but would have also seen these three as not necessarily coming into conflict with their belief system. That fourth one, an obligation to be available sexually to the master, to the master's friends, 
other slaves. That was inherently problematic for Christian slaves and women. Do you see something of the conflict in their hearts, in their minds, in their very bodies to maintain purity, to maintain their calling, to obey their masters where they can, their husbands where they can, in every area, and the demands of the Christian faith and Lord to whom they belong? A little later in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter makes very clear in the first six verses, all Christians, including these, are to stay away from the licentious practices of non-Christians. And when he says this, including slaves, in his address, he is clearly considering them to be integral members of the Christian community. Which means some slaves are refusing to submit in this physical way to their masters. And some wives are refusing to do this at their master's behest with other people in the household. It makes the most sense in light of what Peter is saying about suffering that there are people in this church community who are being severely punished for refusing or for resisting this kind of sexual activity upon demand. And there are many people out there, sadly, who fully expect that Peter will now go on to urge them to submit to or accept that authority, including sexually, to avoid the suffering and to appear good to the outside world and keep things relatively at peace. But Peter has just said, beginning this whole passage, to abstain from the desires of the flesh as a category. What then does he mean when he says what he does in chapter 2 to accept authority? He means that these slaves and then these women are to endure unjust treatment, which is to say suffering for refusing to sin and refusing to indulge the others in their sin. They are to endure unjust treatment as the suffering for behaving correctly. They are to do right even though they are correct in expecting to suffer for it which includes resisting these demands for sexual service. He is not suggesting, you appreciate, that if they will just submit sexually or stop their Christian activities, going to worship with the church instead of to the temple of Dionysus, that if they were just to do that, their suffering would stop. In fact, he insists consistently, their suffering is going to continue. And it's going to continue because their doing good is going to continue. They will not retaliate when punished for their Christian actions. And they will persist in those Christian actions anyway. They will pay the price for not sinning and following in the way of sinners. And they will pay that price knowing the price is not going to stop. Why will they do that? The author clarifies, Peter clarifies, that their behavior is a reflection of the behavior of that Lord to whom they are giving full devotion. He pulls out Isaiah 53, 4 to 12. 
the suffering servant passage. And he points out all of these points of contact between Jesus' experience and what he is expecting these slaves and women to imitate. Jesus was innocent of wrongdoing, he points out, just as you are. Uh, They may have disobeyed the matter by attending church services or resisting the sexual demands, but they are behaving correctly in doing so because even the most innocent and holy behavior is going to cause conflict, is going to cause disharmony in relationships with non-Christians. It is not going to humiliate your suffering. It's not going to increase your harmony with non-Christians. And look at Jesus if you're not sure of it. His own moral actions led to his death. In spite of his innocence, he was subject to abuse. And so will you be when the, when the conflict is between your devotion to Christ and your summoned devotion to anyone else. The abuse they endured was physical and verbal and would have included beating and rape and disabling and cursing and whipping and ridicule and imprisonment. And they will go on anyway. They will go on anyway. Without retaliation. Putting on display the way of Christ. Jesus, who was a slave in that he was despised and rejected by others. Jesus, who did not retaliate, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Like slaves, these wives become a focal point for Peter Don't miss this now, because in them we have an exaggerated example of what every Christian is called to. Every Christian's life in a non-Christian world is caught up in their stories, subject to misunderstanding, subject to abuse, subject to injustice, problems that are heightened for these women and for these slaves because of their low legal status. They are to be honored, yes, but not from a distance. We're to let it reach us. What kind of lives they had so that you will put your life in their light and you will know that there are others who have gone before you, daughters of Sarah. There are examples who have gone before you in whom you see the way of Christ himself who knowing with both eyes wide open, faithfulness will mean great cost. The gospel does not promise less suffering. It does not promise harmony with the world. It promises conflict. And even though in the general world of Ephesians and Colossians, you can talk about harmony in the Christian household, how things ought to be under ordinary circumstances, the first Peter world is the real world too. And these Christian women who provoke this pastoral encouragement provoke also Peter's high admiration and praise. How? In light of all that we have done, our points can be brief. Women in the Hellenistic world of 1 Peter were seen by many, by all, around the church, outside the church, as naturally inferior to men as lacking the capacity for reason that men had, as someone ruled rather by emotions and therefore given to poor judgment, immorality, intemperance, 
wickedness, avarice, who was untrustworthy, contentious, and because of this, it was her place to simply get in line. It was her place to obey. It's safer for the whole world if you just do what you're told. This was the common way of thinking of women at the time. This was also enshrined in legal traditions in the days of 1 Peter. Women could not vote. They could not hold office. They could not take an oath. They could not plead a case in court. They could not be the legal guardian of their own minor children. They were legally dependent on a father or a guardian. And for all of that, Peter does not speak about a general subordination of women to men in general. Do you see how powerful now is Peter's very careful language, which was just like Paul's, that women are submitting to their own husbands? Peter's taking a very far step back from the common way of thinking, all women need to be subordinated to all men or the world's going to fall apart. He has a very different thing in mind when he's talking about submission. Nothing is said in these verses about the general status of women within the Christian community, the general status of women in Christian marriage. Nothing is being said in general at all. This is pastoral to counsel, driven by a particular set of painful, challenging circumstances. And Peter leaves a lot of stuff out that's already well known. To focus on the very hard pastoral question, what do I do when this is what I'm expected to do? We're being given a glimpse of the status of a Christian woman joined to an unbelieving husband in a marriage full of expectations and demands, some of which she can satisfy, some of which she cannot. And when she doesn't, she pays for it. Christian wives are here like Christian slaves, pointing beyond themselves to a general situation of Christians who find themselves at odds in a society within which we must remain true to Christian conviction and Christian confession whatever suffering comes in its wake. Are you ready for that? I don't know when it's coming. I know it's already here in many places in the world as I speak. I know that even today on this Lord's Day, while we sit in the comfort of this beautiful space, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ have gathered in other parts of the world at considerable risk to their very lives. And as distant as this passage may seem from your experience, and maybe it doesn't, know that there are many sisters in Christ around the world for whom this is all too familiar today. Today. The conduct of wives with non-Christian husbands is the chief concern of Peter. And they help us appreciate what he is and is not saying. So, verse 1, Wives, just like slaves, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by your conduct, the conduct of their wives. 
No promise of the husband's conversion, but the encouraging prospect of that possibility. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, don't let your adorning be merely, is the idea, merely external. In a, in a, in a world preoccupied with women feeling the need to retain their husband's attention, because they have so many options, and the more they rise up the social ladder, the more options they have. In a world where women are trying hard to retain the attention of their husbands, there is an excessive use of female ornamentation. Don't fall prey to that, Peter is saying, thinking that by doing so, you will reduce your suffering. That's the concern. Let your beauty be of this other kind. What kind? The hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. What is it about it that's hidden? Well, there's no deliberate hiding going on. The hidden is not a matter of what people see or don't. The hidden is a matter of the internal, the interior heart, the character of the person which is uniquely known by God. God looks upon her and he sees the reality and he is pleased in it, though everyone in her life hates it. Though it brings her great grief and loss, pain and suffering, God sees the very same thing and he is delighted in her. He is delighted in her fortitude, delighted in her perseverance. He sees it as beautiful where the world around her, even in her own bed and in her own home, sees it as horrifically ugly, as off-putting, as distasteful, as rebellious. The Lord looks at the very same thing and delights in her. And it is an imperishable beauty compared to the beauty of all of these other women in this context who have invested everything in external adornment. In God's sight, this gentle and quiet spirit is precious. Now we're thinking, well, that's exactly how women should be, isn't it? Gentle, quiet. We like that, many say. The words that modify spirit here, meek and quiet, to put it in other words, are not feminine terms. These are not feminine qualities. These are Christian ones. These are Christian, not feminine virtues Peter is talking about. Meek, the same language, is used by Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine to talk about himself. And to characterize people on whom he pronounced a blessing in the beatitude of Matthew 5, 5. Peter calls all people to the virtue of meekness in chapter 3, verse 16. And the quiet spirit, this is the ideal both for the Christian community as a whole in 1 Timothy 2, 2 and for individual Christians in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. These aren't distinctively feminine virtues. You know what's distinctive? Meekness of this sort and quietness of this sort in a context like this where women differently from men are able to put these characteristics of union with Christ more fully on display in power than a man can. Why? Because this is the calling they have and men don't in contexts and circumstances like these. They prove to be exemplars not of how women should be as women but as Christians should be as Christians. 
in any context where our faith and commitment to Jesus Christ runs into tension and friction with the unbelieving world, we look to them, whether you're a man or a woman, you look at them, that's how I'm supposed to be. That's the way. This is the way. I'm not a woman, but boy, am I called to be gentle and quiet of this kind, humble and meek. This is not a feminine manifesto. It's a Christian one. To follow in the way of Jesus Christ. The mention of Sarah is very much along these lines. What was it that Sarah and then Rebecca and Rachel and Leah all faced in their lives as Genesis tells us their stories. What is it that they each faced at particularly important junctures in their story? Think of how Sarah's marriage to Abraham went. Was there ever a time she had to think, okay, what am I supposed to do right now? Here he is telling Abimelech this about me, and that's not me, and this is not good. This is going to get us all in trouble. Sarah calls him Lord, not because every woman is supposed to call a man Lord, but because it reflects the disposition of her heart. She entrusts herself to the one who judges justly. She knows the cost, and she pays it. She trusts the Lord, and she knows where the line is. It's Peter that leads us to expect that if Sarah actually had been in that palace, and it actually had been in that king's bedroom, he would have been a very frustrated individual. We don't get that from Genesis, but Peter leads us to say so. Following in the way of Christ precisely when it costs you potentially everything is what it means to have the high honor of being a daughter of Sarah. And if we may, a daughter of these women and following in their way of faith. To be children of Sarah like this is to understand the seriousness, with, the seriousness with which God takes the necessity of men treating women in light of these things as equal heirs to God's eschatological grace, his heavenly grace, so that where the world does not honor Christian women for this, Christian men better. Christian men better. Note how Peter makes the point. Husbands, live with your wives. He's speaking now to Christian husbands because they're receiving the address in this letter to the church. Christian husbands, live with your wives. In English it says in an understanding way. Basically this is a language for study. Study your wife. Like you would a subject that you're interested in incidentally. Study your wife with the expectation that what you learn you're going to use. You're going to use what you learn and adjust your love for your wife accordingly. There is no general husband's love for general wives. There is the particular love a particular husband is called to exercise and show to his particular wife, which will take the form and content it does to the extent you, the Christian husband, get to work. And you study, which means you got to listen more than talk. And you watch, and you listen. 
This, this works. This makes sense. This is who she is. And that's a changing thing, incidentally. And so over the years, as she is changing, you're paying attention. And you're learning and you're studying, but not just to fill your head and give good lectures. You're studying so that you can take what you learn and you adjust it and you accommodate for that. You account for that in the way that you love that woman, which is matched up to reality. Husbands, Love your wives as a student scholar would, in an understanding way, showing honor, which the very process shows honor, showing honor to her as the weaker vessel. Why? Because she is, like everyone else in the ancient world thought, inferior and driven by emotions and intellectually uh, impoverished and unstable and unreliable. No, because Paul is, Peter has just told us in what way these women are weaker vessels. They are more vulnerable than you are more vulnerable to becoming social outcasts, more vulnerable to abuse by others, more vulnerable to rejection, more vulnerable to paying a cost and a price you don't have to pay. So you show honor to them with a view to that vulnerability and you get in the way. You get in the way of it. That's honorable. What Adam failed to do for Eve and what Christ has done for his church You get in the way and you sacrifice yourself so she does not bear the burden, at least, alone. Showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. Why? And here is where Peter proves to be most provocative. You thought the provocative stuff happened earlier. Here is where he's most provocative. Because so far are they from being inferior members of the church community. They are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, what is he saying in brief form? If you don't listen to them, God won't listen to you. If you won't listen to them, God won't listen to you. Is there anything that matters more to a Christian man that his prayers get answered? Is there anything more regularly needed by a Christian man that when he prays for his wife, for his family, for his children, when he prays for himself, when he prays for his church, when he prays for the world, that he's not just breathing and speaking into the air, but that there's a God who hears him and who can answer prayer and who will answer prayer? Aren't we taught to ask for God, from God the things that we need to get through every day to sustain us in life and faith and holiness and godliness? We absolutely depend on the God who answers prayer. And Peter is holding nothing back and saying, look, you're not going to listen, God won't listen to you. Oh, friends, how many of us have not had our prayers answered for that reason? How many of us have not had our prayers answered for that reason and wondered why we haven't had those prayers answered? Peter is pulling us into their story to make sure we know it's ours. And lastly, he is doing this in a way that completely upturns our expectations of how this text proves powerful today. We might be inclined to think, so, all right, so here is our anti-feminist passage. Aren't we glad there are some of them in there? Here's our anti-feminism passage where we can put to death on Christian biblical terms all that nonsense out there in our culture, which we are being flooded with at every turn. Now we have our anti-feminism passage. 
And there are many authentically anti-feminist passages. And in a way, this is one of them, but not quite in the way you expect. What is Peter saying? He is saying that the church absolutely must not be like the world in these things. He's saying, do you get what he's saying? He's saying this is what Christian wives suffer from unbelieving husbands. You see, unbelieving husbands treat them like inferiors. Unbelieving husbands treat their wives as instruments for their pleasure and for their satisfaction. Unbelieving wives confuse, uh, husbands confuse their wives with employees, confuse their wives with just like the children. Unbelieving husbands do those things, not believing ones, not Christian ones. That's not how we do things in the church. The answer to feminism is not rabid patriarchy. I'm sorry. It is not to mimic the ways of the ancient Greco-Roman society in inflating the paterfamilias, whatever he says, go, and, and everyone else in the household is reduced to infantile children. And their obedience and their submission is measured in their submission to the Lord by how far you can take them with your directions and commands. We, no one exists in this household for your pleasure. They exist for the Lord's pleasure. And get out of the way of that, or your prayers will be hindered. You see what Peter is assuming all the way through here? The answer to, to the problems in the church and, and uh, households of Christians is not to reflect the fundamental assumptions of the world at large, sprinkle a little bit of gracious salt and pepper to clean up some of those abuses, but basically operate with the same framework. He's saying that's what Christians have to deal with, with unbelievers. That's not you. That's not how it works here. You want to know how it works here? Look at Ephesians 5 and 6. Look at Colossians. You'll see the ordinary household structure. You'll see how the man is, in fact, the place where the revolutionary power of the gospel of God is put on display under ordinary circumstances. What Paul does in Ephesians is not take the Roman system and say, let's baptize it with a little bit of good theology and a little bit of good grace talk and, and talk about a sanctified version of this model. No, he takes it, pulls it up by the roots, burns it in an ash heap, and says, this is what life looks like in the family and household of God, because this is the kind of Savior you have. And that is Peter's point. Why would Christian wives and slaves do this? Why would they assume so much of the pain and cost to themselves in service to Christ? Because that's the kind of Savior suffering Christians have. And friends, this is the kind of Savior we have when we are called to suffer for the sake of the name. One who has not promised to end the suffering. Who has not promised to keep you from paying the price. Who has not promised to keep you from knowing and feeling the cost. And losing family members. And some of you here have. Losing family members for Christ's sake. Losing loved ones for Christ's sake. Being blamed because of your Christian faith for all kind of bad stuff that happens in your house, in your business, uh, because you're not working on the Lord's Day, you're not going to get any money in this company, it's going to go down because of you, and all kinds of other ills in the world are being blamed on you and put at your feet. Some of you know what I'm talking about. For some of you, this is not as remote as the first century Greco-Roman world. And friends, we have a Savior who, while never promising that he would keep us from suffering, has promised to keep us for himself in it. 
and that he will be glorified in the mystery of your perseverance in trusting him. You won't earn your salvation by it. That's not what we're talking about, category confusion. But the truth of that gospel by which you live will be put wonderfully on display for a watching world of pagans, of unbelievers, who will, who will in some cases, Peter is saying, not all, but in some cases be moved by the fact that you're not just arguing with them all the time. Did you think sometimes that that's what we're expected to do? Is just constantly argue with everybody? Here are Christian wives who are told that by the quiet eloquence of their faithfulness, some may be won to Christ. Because of the self-control of the tongue can be a means of deliverance of those very neighbors to the feet of Christ. This does not valorize suffering as such. This is not an argument for Christian masochism. This is the tragic reality. Temporary, God be praised, of the call to discipleship in historical moments when the church is very much the object of scorn and attack. By and large, we have been spared such things. Many of our friends throughout the world have not been. And we do not know what tomorrow holds for us. May God, by his grace, preserve us in our own ways to be faithful daughters of Sarah, who entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, even when those nearest and dearest do not, and even when we pay for it, because we have such a Savior as this, whose movement in history from suffering to glory holds the promise for those united to him that we too will move from suffering to glory. Not by mimicking the patterns of our world, but by entrusting ourselves to the God of the gospel who turns the world upside down, quietly faithful Christian by quietly faithful Christian. That, my friends, is the way for these women put on display the call to the church at large. May the Lord grant us grace to that end. Let us pray. We do pray, our Heavenly Father, for that grace which only you can give of faithfulness in the midst of profound difficulty and loss. And that we would learn from the example of those who have gone before us of the dignity of pursuing the high calling of God in Christ Jesus and the prize held before us. That we would rely upon your grace for the strength for every moment and hour and not succumb to temptation. Neither the temptation to reject our Lord and our confession of him, nor the temptation to seek the means, the instruments, and the tools and weapons of this evil age as a way to secure ourselves. Instead, we rest in you and pray that we would do so more fully. 
as you grant us grace, which we seek in Jesus' name. Amen.